Father, thank you so much for this time this morning, this chance to grapple with this challenging part of your word. We pray that you would help us to understand what it means, help us to think carefully, help us to hear what you're saying to us for our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So which do you think matters more, justice or mercy? Which would you rather see applied? This week we heard the desire for justice for the victims of the Bloody Sunday killings in Northern Ireland in 1972, when 13 demonstrators of the Civil Rights March were shot and killed by British Army soldiers. One soldier, Soldier F, will face trial nearly half a century after the events took place. Many of the relatives were hoping for more, and they've declared their frustration and anger that, in their view, justice will not be done for their loved ones. In contrast to this, some of the other families are saying that what is needed now is not justice, but mercy. Jerry McKinney reportedly had raised his hands and was pleading, don't shoot, when the fatal bullet fired by a soldier struck him in the chest. But today his daughter has this to say. We're not bitter anymore. It's been too long. What's the point of putting these soldiers in jail? Their children and grandchildren are going to lose them just as I lost my daddy. That can't be right. Well, it's not difficult to see both sides, is it? If a crime has been committed, it is surely right to pursue justice And yet, after all this time, mercy seems equally attractive. It can seem at times that you can only truly have one of justice and mercy, can't it? And it must be at the expense of the other. You know, do you want the the rules to be applied fairly and have justice? Or do you want to sort of suspend the rules and the laws and pretend they don't hold in order to get mercy? What about with God? Can he be both the one who dispenses fair justice and yet also be merciful and forgiving? Many people think he can't be both at the same time. Some even go so far as to present the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament as two different gods. Because it seems like, oh, there's this, the, this, the, the distant, vengeful, judgmental, angry God of the Old Testament... And there's the loving, kind, forgiving God of the New Testament who we meet in Jesus. People often put it like that. Is that right? Well, this account of the uh, judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah in in chapters 18 and 19 in Genesis raises these issues. This is an account that is infamous both within the Bible and in history since Bible times, and there's a lot of ground to cover in these verses, and we're going to focus largely on chapter 18. We, we heard chapter 19, rather. We're going to focus largely on chapter 19. We heard chapter 18 uh, read before by Marina, and there we met these three visitors who come to Abraham and Sarah. One turns out to be the Lord in a kind of shadowy, pre-incarnate appearance. The other two are angels, and there's a meal. And there's some laughter. But then the tone changes. Verse 17. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, says the Lord? And then these verses in in chapter 18, verses 18 and 19, these are critical verses for understanding what follows. Because there are all kinds of interpretations about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, but wouldn't it be helpful to know what God thinks this is about? 
why this is here. And that's exactly what we see in verses 18 and 19. What is God saying? He says, I'm not going to hide from Abraham what I'm about to do because I've chosen him to be the father of a nation, to be a blessing to all nations, so that, verse 19, he will direct his children to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is just and right. So this account that follows of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is there to teach Abraham and his descendants, his children, verse 19, do you see that? It's there to teach them that to be a child of Abraham is to know and trust the God who is revealed in this account and in what happens next. It's to know and trust that God and go his way. So who is this God that is revealed in what happens next? Well, we begin to see in this extraordinary and unique conversation between Abraham and God. He declares that he's going to punish Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. And so Abraham comes to God with this burning and crucial question. Are you going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And it's a kind of justice and mercy question. It may be that some deserve judgment, but what if innocent people get caught up in that? Wouldn't it be better to have mercy instead in that case? And then it seems that Abraham is bargaining God down. I wonder what you made of that. You know, 50 righteous people, if I find them, God says, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Okay, then, well, if 50, what about 45? Just five fewer. What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? For the sake of 10 righteous people, God will have mercy and not destroy the city. Now, it feels like some kind of ancient bartering system, doesn't it? But, But look closely at what Abraham is actually doing. He is appealing to God's own nature, to what he already knows is true about God. And he's then applying that to what God has said about what he's going to do. Because the God of the universe invented justice. There is no higher court of appeal than God. So surely, God, you wouldn't punish those who don't deserve it, would you? Because that would be totally unjust. That's not what you're like. That's what Abraham is saying. He's appealing to God. And we see this kind of thing again and again in the Psalms and other places in the Bible. Actually, it sets a good model for our own prayers. You see, when you pray, appeal to what you know about God. Appeal to the promises that he has made. And verse 25, if you look at that, is so helpful in those situations that we face in all kinds of things. But maybe when a loved one dies who doesn't know Jesus and we are wrestling with what that means for where they stand eternally with God. And we can say with Abraham, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? We can trust God, you see, because whatever he does, it will be right, it will be just, it will be fair because he is just. And he is the just judge. We don't need to speculate about these things, about where somebody will spend eternity. We can leave it with him, knowing that he will do what is right. We know what we need to do. We need to trust in Jesus. That's what we need to tell people around us. We can trust God to do what is right, so that no one will be shaking their heads on the day of judgment, saying, no, God, you got that one wrong. We won't be saying that. We'll be praising him for his just and right judgment. So this story is here to teach us what it means to be a child of Abraham and that to be a child of Abraham is to know and trust this God who is a God of justice and also mercy. And that is what we're about to see now. 
in chapter 19. The God of justice, the God of mercy, revealed for us to know him and trust him as children of Abraham. So let's, let me read now chapter 19. <clears throat> I'm, going to read about, I'm going to read up to verse 29 on page 19, if you'd like to follow with me. The two angels, the ones who just had a meal with Abraham, two of them, arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they'd gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you. You can do what you like with them, but don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, this fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you, we'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moving, moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons in law sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought one out, them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please, your servant has found favour in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of. But flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoah. By the time Lot reached Zoah, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. And, but, but Lot's wife looked back. And she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah. 
towards all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. So, who is this God? He is a God of justice, a God of mercy. Let's look at those two things. First, he's a God of justice. God's justice is directed against the sin of Sodom. The outcry has reached God, we hear. What is their sin? Well, clearly there is a same-sex aspect to the sin here. The angels have turned up in Sodom. Lot has invited them in, and the men of the city hammer on Lot's door, demanding that they be let in to have sex with the men in the house. Now, we'll consider that a bit further in a moment, but it's important to realise that elsewhere in the Bible, Sodom is held up as a paradigm, a kind of supreme example of God's judgment. And the reason that it's given for that is more than just something to do with homosexuality. Ezekiel describes the sin of Sodom as arrogance, uh, of greed, of total lack of care for the poor and the needy. And Jude in the New Testament in verse 7 in in that book talks about sexual immorality and perversion. So we need to ensure we don't mishear what is going on here as somehow singling out homosexual practice as more sinful than other sin that is later described as the sin of Sodom. And yet as we read this today as 21st century people with all the discussion around gay rights and same-sex marriage in our culture and in our denomination in the Church of England, there'll be all kinds of questions in our minds and alarm bells even as we as as we hear this. So we need to pause for just a moment to understand a little bit about how this fits into the the wider biblical teaching on homosexuality. Now, I have no doubt that there are people in this room right now who either experience same-sex attraction themselves or have loved ones and close friends who identify as gay. And we want to say as a church, everybody is welcome here. Homophobia is where you fear or you hate someone because of their sexual orientation. And there can't be a place for that here. We need to say that loud and clear. And yet we also have to reckon with the wider biblical teaching about God's good gift of sex, which is that he designed and intended it for marriage between a man and a woman. And that understanding of the right place of sex is a challenge not just to people who experience same-sex attraction, but it's a challenge to everyone who is tempted by or engaging in either sex before marriage or sex outside marriage. And remember, Jesus makes it clear that lust is as serious as adultery from God's point of view. And what happens here in Sodom is merely one example of the many different ways all human beings express our fallenness. I I, I hope at some point that we can explore this as a church in more detail than we can right now looking at this here. But I have put a couple of um, things at the bottom of the um, the notice sheet, a couple of resources. I was hoping I'd have some copies of a really helpful book. Um, They were supposed to be delivered yesterday and the, the, the chappie went away without delivering them unfortunately. But there's a book called Is God Anti-Gay? 
uh, by Sam Albury. Um, hopefully by next week we'll have some copies of this. Otherwise you'll find it online. It's short. It's really, really helpful. Written by someone um, who them, himself I, uh, would call himself same-sex attracted but seeking to live um, a celibate lifestyle uh, out of faithfulness to God. Really helpful book to read. Um, and there's a really helpful website as well, that, uh, livingout.org, um, which has got loads of testimonies from Christians who are thinking through these precise issues. So please do have a look at those and talk to me afterwards if you want to. But for the time being, what we need to see here in this account is what is happening here in Sodom. That the sin of its people is being judged for all the ways that it falls short of God's plan and purpose for human beings. For sexual sin, but also for greed, for lack of love for the poor. And the thing is, as we heard in Luke chapter 17, this is held up in the rest of the Bible as a picture of God's judgment of the world for all the many different ways that we turn our backs on our creator. And what we can see here is that God sees injustice and sin. We can't hide from him. That's the point of these angels, including the angel of the Lord, coming down. God isn't remote from sin and injustice. He is concerned about it. And how much more do we know that now that Jesus has come, now that God has stepped into the world as a man? And the thing is, he will act, having seen it, to put it right. That's what this is telling us. In a a social media world, we're used to being able to edit the face that we portray to the world, either literally or metaphorically. But God knows what we're like. He sees and he will act. Files on hard drives can be deleted. Internet histories can be edited. Conversations behind closed doors can be forgotten. Private thoughts can be concealed from the rest of the world. Judges and juries can be manipulated. Elections can be rigged. The guilty can escape human justice. The innocent can be wrongly condemned. But God knows and he sees and he will act. That is what happens here. That is what this is telling us. We can tell from the conversation that Abraham and God had in chapter 18 that this is not fly-off-the-handle capricious rage for a minor trifle. This is careful, considered, just, deserved judgment. Even for the sake of ten righteous people, the city would not be condemned. But not even those ten could be found. God is slow to anger, as we saw in the opening verse at the beginning of the service. But... He will bring judgment. He cares about injustice. He cares about victims of abuse. He cares about those who exploit the poor and the vulnerable. And he says, I'm not just going to sweep that under the carpet and ignore it. Justice will be done. And isn't that good news? With the news of the the horrendous shootings in in the mosques in New Zealand. And that's just this week, isn't it? Every day, every week, we hear of things where we cry out and say, where is the God of justice? And then perhaps we start to worry, can any human court truly deliver justice to a mass murderer? Because probably in the end, a human court is going to struggle, isn't it, to distinguish between somebody who murders 20 people and somebody who murders 50 people, and then somebody who murders hundreds or thousands. But God says, don't fear Justice will absolutely be done in the end. 
The problem is, as we've seen in Genesis, the line between good and evil isn't somewhere out there in the world. The line between good and evil runs down the middle of each one of us. And the thing is that in the end, this is what we too deserve for our own individual rebellion against God. And it's what the people of Sodom deserved. Despite all of Abraham's intercession in chapter 18, there weren't even those ten righteous people. And so then, look at the judgment that comes. Verse 24, burning sulfur. Now, the, 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 the rains down from heaven. The description of what happens here is, is a little bit like a volcanic eruption. Now, it's clear that the judgment is from God. It's not sort of denying that. But it, it actually fits with the geography of the area, which even to this day, with the Dead Sea, has got lots of bits of floating asphalt and bitumen in it. And that, 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 that may sort of be, um, help us to understand what, what's going on here. It may help us to understand what happens with Lot's wife. But she turns to a pillar of salt. And, you know, I think of Pompeii. Think of the eruption of Vesuvius in AD 79 and how people were struck down as they tried to flee and ended up being cast in volcanic ash. There was an exhibition a few years ago in the British Museum. You could go and see them. And there was this particularly poignant and distressing cast of a young girl standing on her mother's lap, arms outstretched. And there she had died. And perhaps that is what happens to Lot's wife as she turns around and gets caught up in this, gets turned to a pillar of salt. It's a way of describing that kind of thing. But whatever it is, it is judgment that comes from God on a, a, a sinful city. And in case we think, here we go again with the nasty God of the Old Testament... Do you know who talks about the judgment of God and hell more than anybody else in the New Testament? Do you know on whose lips descriptions of that are found more than anyone else in the New Testament? It's Jesus himself. He describes hell as eternal fire. See, this is serious. It's meant to be taken seriously. The God of the Old Testament is the same God we meet in Jesus in the New Testament. But then, if we need to see that God is the God of justice, maybe surprisingly, the merciful God of the New Testament is also the same one that we see in the Old as well. And that takes us to the second thing we need to see here. God is a God of justice. God is a God of mercy. So secondly, mercy. For a start, in in his mercy, people are warned. That happens in this passage, doesn't it? People sometimes thinks it's, think it's scare tactics for God to talk about judgment like this. But isn't it actually loving to warn people of what's coming? You know, you see a child playing on a road. You don't hang about wondering if it's scare tactics to warn them. You say, get out of the road, you're going to be run over. And it's incredibly unloving not to. See, the only reason not to do that with God's judgment would be if we didn't really believe it was coming. So verse 12, do you have anyone else in this city? The angels say to Lot, get them out because we're about to destroy it. It's a warning. Verse 14, Lot goes to warn his sons-in-law. It is merciful to warn them. But even they don't listen, as we'll see in a moment. And then look at verse 16. What does it take to get Lot out of the city? The men have to literally grab him by the scruff of the neck and drag him out. Do you see that? It's striking, isn't it? And look at the end of the verse. For the Lord was merciful. To them. 
This is, what the, this is what the Lord being merciful looks like, grabbing them, dragging them, so that they do not have to face the coming judgment. It's a striking picture of rescue. Now, why rescue Lot, then? I wonder if that thought has crossed your mind as we read chapter 19. Was Lot righteous? Well, as far as the narrative of Genesis is concerned, there isn't very much that is positive about him at all. Do you remember back in chapter 13, if you were here, he chose to come and live in Sodom based on the appearance of wealth and prosperity. And first he lived near Sodom, and then suddenly he was living in Sodom. And now, chapter 19, verse 1, he's sitting at the gateway of the city. And that's the ancient equivalent of kind of sitting with the cool kids. He, he is in with the in crowd in this city. He may still be called an alien, verse 9, but he's assimilated very nicely. And then there's verse 8, look at that, which would have been as horrifying to ancient ears as it is to ours. What on earth is Lot doing offering his virgin daughters to these gang rapists at the door. The problem is he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. As far as he can see, someone horrendously is going to be sexually assaulted. And in a twisted process of logic, he decides that if at least he can be hospitable to his guests, it won't be quite as bad. The fact is that he's facing an impossible choice because of the bad choices he's made along the way. And now he's reaping the fruit of all the compromises he has made. Is he righteous? Well, he doesn't look it. But the New Testament interprets the Old. And in 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 8, we read that Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds of the people of Sodom living around him. Now that is often the way with Christians, when we compromise with the world around us. You can have this job if you're prepared to tell white lies to your clients. You know, here's cash in hand, don't worry about the tax. And so often actually it's the compromised Christian who is the most miserable of all. One foot in a boat, one foot still on shore, unwilling to move as the boat drifts away to the middle of the harbour and it ends in chaos and disaster. But aren't we the same? In the end, the only way in which Lot can be declared righteous is the same way that flawed Abraham is declared righteous. Because he believed God, he believed God's promises and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that is the same way that we today can be declared righteous. Not because of anything good in us. We are sinners. But when we believe and trust God, he declares us righteous on the basis of what Jesus has done. And look at, then at, what, uh, at chapter 19, verse 29, the last verse of the reading. Even if it's true that Lot was righteous that description of him in the New Testament, even if, you know, if we say, okay, that's fine, Lot is, can be seen as declared righteous, is that actually why he was rescued, according to that verse, the last verse? Why was he rescued? The Lord remembered, not Lot and his righteousness, the Lord remembered Abraham. Do you see that? It was because of God's promise to Abraham that Abraham's family member, Lot, was rescued. And we've seen there are three ways that the New Testament speaks about Abraham as the model of faith, as the father of a great nation, and then as a type of Christ, a foreshadow pointing forwards 
to Jesus. And that is what's going on here. Do you see how that is the case? Well, it's a picture of it because we each deserve the judgment of which Sodom is an advanced picture. But God came down to rescue us by the scruff of the neck. And why did he do that? Was it because we deserved it? Well, how does Paul put it in Romans chapter 5 in the New Testament? He says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is why he rescues us. Because if you like, he remembers Jesus. Not that he was in danger of forgetting him, that's not what that word means, but he acts because of what Jesus has done. Just like he did with Abraham, who had believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So how then will we respond to this? Well, very briefly as we finish, there are three main responses in these verses. First, the sons-in-law. They laugh. Now, it's a different kind of laughter from Abraham and Sarah's laughter in the previous chapters. That was a kind of too good to be true. This is wonderful kind of laughter. This is, ha, you must be joking. You can imagine them talking together as they laugh. Uh, Verse 14, you can imagine them talking, you know, good one lot, you know. (laughs) He's joined the God squad, lads. Nice daughters, but shame about the crackpot dad. But if you go into work tomorrow, or you chat to your non-Christian neighbours, and they say, well, how was your Sunday then? And you say, well, I was at church and I heard a talk about the coming judgment of God. Many will probably laugh. You don't really believe that, do you? Come off it. Be ridiculous. And they laugh here. And actually, it's the same with the prophets later in the Old Testament. It's the same as Jesus describes in the reading from Luke that we heard, how life will appear to carry on with people eating and drinking and presumably laughing right up to when he returns. It's the same when the Apostle Paul preaches about Jesus judging the world in Acts chapter 17, verse 32. When they heard about this, Luke writes, some sneered. It's the same in 2 Peter chapter 3 when Peter says that in the last days scoffers will come saying, where is this judgment that he promised? It's not coming, is it? Scoffing, mocking. In other words, it's not just moderns, it's not just postmoderns, not just millennials and so on who mock this idea of God judging the world. It's always been like this. But Lot was deadly serious. So were the prophets, so was Jesus, so was the Apostle Paul, so was the Apostle Peter. So are we. So am I. Do you believe there will be a day when God judges the living and the dead? Well, listen to the warning now before it's too late and take refuge in Jesus. That's laughter. Then lingering. Lot lingered. He hesitated, verse 16. Do you see that? Why did he do that? And there's just that sense, isn't there? What is Lot doing as he lingers? He loved this city that he'd come to live in. He loved Sodom. It was a a godless place. It had become his home. He was compromised. It was only by the grace of God that his lingering did not end in disaster. There is an urgency to our response to this message. You see, it's too easy to put it off to another day. To wait for an easier season of life. To assume that there will be a moment on our deathbed to repent. And Christians also, we can lose that urgency when we're sharing the good news about Jesus with others. 
As we sit here this morning, do you need to be grabbed by the scruff of the neck to stop you from lingering one day longer? If you know you've been putting off responding to Jesus, content with sitting on the fringes of church and the Christian life, what is stopping you from responding today? Don't linger. And then finally, Lot's wife looked back. Verse 26. They, they were warned not to, verse 17, but she did. What was going on then? Well, what was going on that was that Lot's wife was trying to leave the city without her heart. She'd verbally agreed to leave with Lot, but in her heart she longed to stay. It's very dangerous to look back. Any Israelite reading this would have known how this was ex the exact same sin that the Israelites committed after they left Egypt. Once they were in the desert, they found themselves longing to go back to slavery in Egypt, where at least there was food on the table each day. They looked back and they grumbled. Do we look back if we're trusting in Jesus now? Maybe at, at life before we came to faith? Or a, a sort of imagined life that we might live now if we were not trusting in Jesus. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, says Jesus. Don't look back, look ahead. Press on, as we saw last week in Philippians chapter 3. Press on to what God has called us to. So justice and mercy, which matters more? God says they both matter. Justice must be done, and it will be done. We need not fear that wickedness and evil will go undiscovered, ignored, and minimised. But mercy will be shown, yet not at the expense of justice, but because at the cross, when Jesus died, justice and mercy met. And now when God looks at his people, he remembers Jesus who suffered the just judgment that sinful people deserve. And so he remembers Jesus and he has mercy on us who don't deserve it. And he brings those who trust him out of the catastrophe that we deserve. What is left then? To put our trust in Jesus as a child of Abraham. And know and trust the God of justice and mercy. Heed his warnings. Ensure that we warn others as well. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for these words that we've had in front of us this morning. Challenging, deeply challenging for each one of us in different ways. We want to praise you that you are a God of justice and you are a God of mercy. That evil will not be left unpunished. You will act to put things right. And yet as we reflect on our own lives, we know how desperately we need your mercy. And so does the world around us. May we then respond with our faith <clears throat> firmly in Jesus who died so that justice 
might be done so that mercy might be shown. And may we then live as you call your children to live. May we direct our children, our households, our own lives to keep your ways by doing what is right and just. Trusting in you, the God of justice and mercy. Amen.